how do you make comics without all the frustration, without feeling lousy and inadequate all the time? Join me, Jess Rolofson, and me, Tom Hart, on The Terrible Anvil. Each week, we build community and shift our mindset about what it means to make comics and art. We're working through the whole process, one piece at a time, turning our suffering and angst into fun and glee. Join us at sawcomics.org. Okay, it's on you, Jess. This reminds me of when people, uh, like pilots and co-pilots, we, we've pressed all the buttons and now we're, we're reaching cruising altitude. Hello, this is Jess Rulofson and it's the Terrible Anvil. Uh, again, and Terrible I'm Tom. Anvil. I'm Jess Rulofson and this is... And I'm, oh, Tom Hart. Yeah, Tom is here, uh, which is good. And uh, it's episode four, if you like numbers and enjoy counting. Um, and we're talking about how to build a dream castle. And as per usual, we'll be going into lots of digressions and and talking kind of about different types of castles and different uh, translations of that phrase. And then also the big dream for this podcast, aside from Tom and I just having a merry time and, and bringing you in to the goofiness that we seem to... <laughs> uh i don't know generate when we get together uh we're uh, so i'm making a book it's true it's called the bootlegger's guide to making comics and tom had this good idea let's let's um see if we can take some of some of the book guts and turn it into a podcast and see if it sticks if it works if there's things you could expand on or get rid of completely so it's sort of like testing material out it's, it's a really great idea but it's also been really difficult to um stay on task so Tom was like don't we have like the book here somewhere so we looked at that before we hopped on the call but also it's been really nice having a bit of an audience on the zoom calls chiming in in the chat and also people from saw chiming in in the flow group or in the youtube comics comments so there's lots of places to interact so I am mindful that we really value your time and we would like to answer some of your questions so we're trying to strike a balance between answering questions and then sort of um my my ultimate my um secret ulterior motive of trying to get my book to put its pants on so we're we're the two main topics it seems like is the dream castle idea which i think um sort of generated out of a comment from one of our attendees last week adrian was asking about how to make an optimal workspace. And then Tom and I got talking about it. I'm, I'm really paraphrasing here, but uh, we were also like, oh, well, what kind of castle are you building to in your work? So we're, I think there's a lot of metaphors and you know, I love a metaphor. So we're gonna talk about that. But then also within the book, Tom shared on the Flow Network, kind of in the comments, I was thinking this week about the value of editors and audience and, and how those are different. And that feels like a lot to unpack. So. It would be great to touch on that if it comes up. So we're trying to braid these two random things together. Uh, my thoughts and your thoughts. And what are Tom's thoughts? What does this sound like a good idea? Should we do this? Totally. The, um, you, the, how to dream a, a how to dream a build castle? How to build a dream castle is is a great phrase, and it and it reminds us that you know hopefully the work is serving us as people, right? And we're and this castle that we're building is something that we want to feel proud of and safe in and, and that we have some sort of dominion over and that 
gives us, you know, it 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 built it it lifts us into a, a sort of state where we can feel kind of like um important to ourselves at least, right? You know, if we if we build ourselves a castle, we all deserve a castle. Um yes. I want to be <laughs> castle Oprah. You get a castle, you get a castle, <laughs> everyone gets a castle. So so yeah, so the idea originally came from like you talking about studio spaces and like how do you make that workspace really special for you? And we can talk about that real quick. And then we can also talk about um the environment, which is social, but it's all and visual and ritualistic and all sorts of things, the environment in which we make our books. And that does include audiences and editors. So let's just dig in. And please, if you have questions, put them in the chat. Um meanwhile we'll um we'll just dive in where do you want to start uh well let's talk since we've titled this we keep talking about dream castles i don't know sometimes i think of a random phrase and tom's like eureka you've got it and he writes <laughs> it on a scrap of piece of paper and then we just dig a hole and we bury it we talk so much about this random thing dream castle sounded really great and that's not the word i would use to describe my desk. <laughs> it doesn't look like a dream castle uh, all of the time. But uh, something that happens some of the time in the um, Mighty Network with Saw, depending on what group, particularly early on in the longer form classes we have, like the year-long program or the six-month graphic novel intensive, we kind of introduce ourselves. And occasionally, a student will show their work and we'll see a glimpse of their workspace. And then everyone in the comments is like, what kind of pencil is that? Or like, oh, I use Procreate too. And there's something really delightful about everyone kind of gather, gathering around the watering hole and talking about um, the tools of the trade. And um, they can sort of hypnotize us. Uh, like they, like if I get this magic bean, I, I will then become the master creator of the universe. Uh, and sometimes that's true. Like, but there's also been times I've bought like a big pack of beautiful post-its and I do use them, but not the way that I thought I would. Like, <laughs> I haven't put them on my wall. And also in relation to dream castles, um, some of our students have shared working drafts that have sort of adapted a physicality over time, particularly if you have a draft that's been lurking a long time, it'll slowly start climbing up the walls <laughs> of your studio. So you'll have, or, or living room even, you'll have a wall with like, um, you know, notes to yourself or actual comics, draft pages or or scripts, like all kinds of stuff. So that's really exciting too, when the art starts getting on the walls. So yeah, in particular, you were talking about um, some of our visiting artists. Uh, Laura Gao was one. I think maybe Catherine Woodman Maynard and, and uh, Tessa Hulls also all had sort of color-coded systems on the walls behind them, right? And that was to help them help them uh manage their story and it was this this large scale it's like on a wall large scale physical presence in their workspace and you in particular mentioned the color coded and how just it blows everyone's mind and they're all like that's the answer i just need to color code and then everything falls into place <laughs> which um it's funny i remember early on when i had no idea how to make a comic or anything i did i got a big piece of brown butcher paper and i just put it on my wall and i just started scribbling on it like a mad person and um i actually didn't realize how common something like that is is actually talking about putting that putting your work on the wall so that you're in it you know at the at the time i thought it was kind of crazy and my my roommates at the time were annoyed but um so 
when we get glimpses into other people's workspaces and into other people's habits, are we talking about, um, are we being inspired? Are we being envious? Are we, are, do, are we, are we seeing hints about how to build our own, our own workspace? What do you think, Jess? Um, yeah, I, I think it could be all of those things. And also I noticed Maria in the chat was like, oh, I was thinking about the work that we create is the dream castle. And Tom was thinking that too. So we're starting with the physical space and then hopefully we'll move into the, uh, the dream space within like how, how to build your book or your idea or a, a creative life that could also be a dream castle that's not manifested as Ikea furniture, but could be also, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes when you see stuff, you're like, oh, that's awesome. I mean, a lot of people, myself included, we live on the internet. There's Pinterest, there's Instagram, there's all these places to, um, di digest beautiful, um, inspirational images of people's living spaces. Um, there's a subreddit called Cozy Spaces that I don't visit too often because I think it started out as like a place where, Manhattanites and people living in like cliff, cliff dwelling Swedish towns or something like little tiny living spaces had built little micro dream castles, uh, living terrariums for themselves. And now I, I, I don't go on there too often, but when I do it, it's like these just palatial <laughs> like uh, rooms and they, they're cozy, but like square footage wise are not cozy. <laughs> and they're, they feel very um, decadent and um, just like more akin to architectural digest versus like a, a modest home for yourself and there's nothing wrong you can Tom was sort of asking are you a maximalist or a traditionalist like what kind of castle do you want to build there's nothing wrong with that but I think when I think cozy there's a certain idea in my head of uh, what a space could look like that feels good to me and then I raise an eyebrow at anyone who does something a little different than that um uh, so sometimes it's inspirational, but it's also difficult um, to not be comparative in a negative way, particularly if you're someone with limited means. I, I did notice the longer I lived in New York City, the smaller my paintings got. <laughs> so my physical dream castle was getting more and more expensive uh, around me. And I, I had actually had a, uh, by the time I was at the last apartment I lived in in Brooklyn, it was pretty, pretty spacious, but my work was getting smaller. So my dream castle itself was becoming more portable <laughs> in service of like paint is expensive, rent's going up, this paper is really good, but what if I just use a small piece of it? Um, so we can also do budget dream castles. <laughs> All right, we've got some good visuals in our brains now, I think, right? So yeah. um, do we want to talk, I, do we want to talk about audience and editor and how like we're creating like in the, the who are we making this for and how is this part of the structure of our our uh, kingdom or queendom. What do you call it? You call it a queendom? So your sovereignty of your <laughs> kingdom, kingdom. <laughs> but uh, I'll let you I'll let you go into that. But I but one thing that is early on in the bootleggers book that we wanted to to talk about and we've touched on a little bit was thinking who we're making this thing for. And if we're building a dream castle, right? If we're building this, it sounds like it's for us. It sounds like it's really special. It's going to be my place where I put all of my knickknacks and the colors I like that no one else likes, you know, and stuff like that. But we start thinking about audience and we start thinking it has to be this way. And we start thinking about the editors that are going to look at it or whatever. And we start thinking they're going to want it this way and that way. And already we start decorating in the way that isn't us, right? So how do we, how do we get out of it? 
well, I think it's good to think about audience some of the time, but I also think it's easier to edit if you've got something on paper first. I think if you, uh, <laughs> this feels so like uh, hypocritical when I say this because I'm like afraid of everything everything <laughs> but if you live your life where you're avoiding everything then it's a hard uh, road to travel and uh, I, I think if you're trying to avoid well I can't say this because theoretically an audience member or an editor might think xyz it's it's really hard to make work in a space like that so I allow yourself to make uh, the best work I've made I've made the terrible draft <laughs> via the terrible anvil just have a deadline do it make it not fancy and have it all live on paper or on the walls and just see it. And then once you see it, you can start to renovate your dream castle or upgrade your dream castle. It's like, maybe you have to have like a starter home dream castle <laughs> and then move on to something a little fancier. Um, but if I think if you invite the editors in or the audience in too soon, sometimes that can be negative. Um, I was trying to think of like what audience and editors might look like. It could just be friends. It could also be if you're serializing your work as a zine to take to the small press expo and share your beautiful big project with your friends that you love. I feel like that's really positive. Um, and it gives you a deadline and, and you can work in sections, um, but it's it can also be discouraging if, if you're tabling and you have a big pile of zines and people pick them up and throw them down and then wander off. And you're like, oh, that took me so long to draw and no one cares. So, uh, so those things certainly influence our vision or our future vision for our work or our dream castle, like what could it be? Sometimes when you invite the audience in, it's hard not to be influenced by um, by how how that experience plays out. You were talking about serializing a little bit earlier and how sometimes that goes to create the, the what, what are we talking? We're talking about the environment, right? The sort of environment in which we create the, the thing. Um, and that serial serializing sometimes can help create this like the, again this like welcoming environment where like I I'm I'm putting the work out there slowly I'm getting a little bit of feedback people are responding um, I don't feel as lost and alone like I'm quote working on a graphic novel which means nobody hears from me in six years and and I don't see you know I don't get to see the sun or something like that. Um, how many other ways are there that in which we can like create the circumstances in which we can actually just make the thing dream castle or not? Well, it's something I thought about when you were talking that might be a little bit of a tangent is the um, pressure of artists on social media, like Instagram to share their work. Uh, and, and the idea that that work should be polished and fully actualized on a level or impressive or beautifully rendered or um it gets thousands of likes and is shared everywhere and it changes the world like that's cool and I hope that happens but also like um usually I get like three likes I'm not even on Instagram anymore but um there there's less engagement and you're like what am I making this for so so have I think there's a pressure for modern cartoonists to share the work immediately while you're working on it I think there are different platforms like Patreon for example or even sharing in the Mighty Network with Saw. You can share stuff that's in draft uh, draft form and people get really excited about it. Whereas I think there are other platforms where there's a pressure to make it a little more um, fancy or finished, like a final product. So that's something to be aware of. Like, is that useful? I think both are useful, but it depends on where you're at and how you're feeling about 
the work and also your vision, maybe the dream castle for you as a cartoonist. Like, am I a real cartoonist if uh, I get a lot of followers on Instagram or uh, am I a real cartoonist if Tom likes this really goofy doodle proto draft that I put on the saw social media or something like um it's hard not to be influenced by other people I, I feel like I went on a tangent I don't, I don't know if we're still talking about what we're still talking about all right let's talk about lettering yay lettering I know so the joke is now we're on episode four and we're like we got to get down to some brass tacks like lettering and we're like next episode next episode <laughs> and we keep getting into the philosophical weeds so that's another challenge of the terrible anvil is like we do want to provide some value <laughs> we don't want to do too much navel gazing but lettering might be episode five <laughs> <laughs> you're um you're serializing the stories that you're doing with your husband about working in hospitals and now you're starting to put your mind or your eye on a bigger project or or, or this compiling this into a, a large scale book, right? But did that start yeah. from the beginning? I don't know. I think I, I was after I turned in the graphic novel, the well, only one I've made the um, the interviews with veterans. I, I turned in the final manuscript and nothing happened. <laughs> I was like, yay. And I was like looking around my living room and the cat was asleep. I was like, oh. So I would, I felt like uh, I have to have something to do. It was a little bit like leaving a really well-developed relationship that had come to its end and trying to get back on the market and date again. I was like, I don't, how do I meet an idea? So I had ideas. I was in the middle of the um, the one-year MFA in creative writing I uh, got into, and that was really cool. But um but I, yeah, I guess I just, I sort of glommed on to, he was writing kind of a memoir and I was like, I think it should be a comic. <laughs> I don't know whose idea it was, but I, I think uh, once I realized, oh, it could be a comic and we'll do some short things. And we pitched a few ideas to the nib that's, um, they still have a newsletter, but they're not publishing. Um, but they've got a great archive of all kinds of short form um, nonfiction on their website. And um, I, so I thought it was going to be these like little kind of things, like little two pager things and I didn't really have an idea as it being a bigger piece and then just by chance when one of the only book events I did the art director from the Boston Globe that I had worked with probably like 10 years ago in serializing some of the veteran graphic novel with the Boston Globe uh, we worked together and so she came and did a Q&A in support of the book being released and was like what are you working on and I wanted to sound like I was busy so I was like Oh, I'm making a graphic novel about these uh, these stories from the ICU, which wasn't a lie. <laughs> if you say it, uh, then you got to do it, I guess. So, uh, so sometimes your good ideas come from other people. I guess <laughs> it seems like a good idea, but it is funny. Like uh, my partner writes fiction and nonfiction and essays, and uh, depending on the day, sometimes I'm like. I don't know. Are you sure you, it should be a graphic novel? Maybe you should just write a memoir. And then there are other times where like, oh, this is definitely a graphic novel. So I think part of me, I'm trying to get out of it because I'm afraid of it or lazy. I'm like, I don't want to do this. Um, but I don't know how that, it, we, ha we haven't, I think we've done a decent amount where we could pitch it and, and try to sell it or something. But um, I don't know what the final book will look like. In terms of building that dream castle, I was like, I just need to, I need something to work on because that felt good having a bigger thing. 
it just sounds more impressive let's just say you're working on a book versus like I make these things sometimes and I don't know what they mean <laughs> and uh and it seems like there's a good moment to talk about um people that work in healthcare and and what that's like and also what healthcare is like and who healthcare is for like uh and there's a big movement with um something called graphic medicine and there's a like a big conference every year it's it's become like an international movement in the last 10 years um so yeah it seems like a thing that I could do my dream castle seems relevant well that's it that's an interesting that that's an interesting point because um oh so many of us are, like, are you know we want to work on something it's, and and we feel like we feel like it's relevant and then, and then, but then we re, then we meet with um, maybe disinterest or other people say, um, I, I wh where am I trying to go with that? Relevant in the in the broader world is a harder is a hard thing to sort of deal with, right? And I I, I worry yeah. that that's one of those quote audiences, and especially it's kind of an abstract audience. If 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 we shoot, I mean, you're lucky because I do think you're right that it probably is relevant. It should um, still be, I think it should be secondary, like the right. relevance of your work. It should always be secondary because that's not always up to you to decide. Uh, and we're not always right. We're not, not always good judges of, of what we're doing. But also like the work is still important and should be made, even if it's not like, it doesn't feel like it's a nail on the head with the cultural relevancy. What do you think, Tom? Build the dream castle first then then make the flag and then go out and tell and, and plant the flag yeah yeah and plant the flag right or uh i'm, I'm not really sure i'm not much of a uh you know well, I, was trying to, I was trying to find ways to get the uh, audience slash uh editor idea uh blended in with the dream castle and i was like is that like where they say location, 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 like loca location is everything? Is that like the location of your dream <laughs> castle? I don't know, but I'm getting into the weeds with the metaphor, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And I'll well, get back to you on that. <laughs> I think we should get down to quote brass tacks again. I remember taking a, a really short, like three hour course back when courses were in real space, <laughs> even three hour ones with, um, with a woman who ran Cartoon Network at the time. And at the time, uh, I saw a lot of my friends trying to get animation gigs and and I saw one or two of them get them, you know, and, mm -hmm. but lots of, it seemed like you could, it was easy to pitch things, but nothing would get through and stuff. And, and she said, um, she said something simple, which does sound simple, but it's also nearly impossible as far as finding that quote relevant work. She said, she said, find the red X and stand on it. Mm -hmm. which is a great metaphor, except it's nearly impossible. It's like, who knows where that red X is, right? You can't find it. She meant find the, find the thing that's missing that wants to exist. And that, and especially that, that, that a commercial institution like the Cartoon Network would want and then do it. Mm -hmm. it she didn't make it sound easy, you know, um, but it's not. And, and even people in those, anyway, we're, again, I think that's relevant. I I, I wonder if uh, if the the work that people tend to make is in response to not seeing that story out in the universe, right. and thus it sort of plants a seed of relevancy. Like uh, a lot of the stuff that we talk about is like 
I haven't heard anyone say this, not necessarily on our podcast, but I, I do feel like sometimes stories come from that. Some people have the opposite problem. We're like, oh, there's a lot of stories like this. Why will mine matter? Uh, and that can be a comparative dream castle conundrum. There's um, there's also this, I've seen this pop up a couple of times in the past week or two. I was talking with friends um, and they're working on a book and they thought it was a young adult book but it maybe probably isn't and they're not really sure. And, and then they're getting sort of like their wires are getting crossed a little and they're not sure. Do I put this in or not? Do I put this in or not? Okay. Luckily in the case of, um, in the case of uh, Lauren Weinstein, who I was talking with this week, she's got an agent who says, just make it and we'll figure out how to sell it afterwards. And so that's great. So like, she doesn't have, um, she doesn't have an editor in her brain right now saying, no, no, no. She's got an editor in her brain saying yes, <laughs> and that's really good. But if we overthink those audiences and and who are what our editors might want and who our audiences might be, if we overthink that, we might. We're just I I, I don't know. I always advocate for more weird, uncategorizable content. Yes, yes, yes. Shorthand. I don't like using that word either. But I just want more uncategorizable stories. I want more personal. Yeah, yeah I agree. And you can't market something that doesn't exist. I mean, some people do. I guess a lot of people make money doing that. But you don't want to be the, uh, you know, what is that? I'm trying to think of that lady's name. The lady that went to prison for her, like, scheme about blood work. I forever her name. Oh, yeah. I don't remember. Why? Don't be that person. <laughs> uh, it, I don't know. Like, if you if you have a draft, then you have something to figure out well, what about it is interesting to you? Like have, have more conversations with yourself than with the outside world at first. You build your dream castle of a studio and then you keep the door shut when you're working. Like, uh, no, I can, it's it's funny. I think there, there have been um, more intelligent writers than me quoted as saying like, I, I have to shut the world out to build the world and then go share it with the world. Like, But mm -hmm. you, have, you have to have a little bit of um, territory that's just for you. And then cross that territorial divide and share the work. Yeah, privacy. And that's why the castle is a good metaphor, right? Because it does have some fortification. Fortified, yeah. Yeah, and the walls are, you know, the walls are are thick, but you're not, uh, hopefully you're not hiding in it, you know? You're hiding in it long enough to get the work done. Maybe hiding is the wrong word, but but yeah, it, it needs to be strong, this castle, if you're going to make the work. All right, let's let's... So what if the work itself is a castle? What are we doing? Let's change this up. <laughs> or yeah. not. Well, hmm. we do have, so I was talking with a nonfiction class. We do four-week classes at SAW and we're week, week three. Also, meant to ask you, Tom, I think this four-week class should really be a 90-day class. <laughs> I know it's probably too late to change it now, I but... Um, could we do could we do a three month nonfiction class asking you live on air? And we can put a pin in that, but yeah, it just made me think of that. Um, we were talking yesterday in this very brief nonfiction class about um having one question to ask to to go into uh the work that you're doing. It's particularly useful if you've accumulated a ton of research that you're sort of simmering in and uh <laughs> and can't find a way out. Uh, and and a lot of uh, scholars will do this. They'll pick up an academic paper with a question in mind as they're reading it to make it stick to their brain a bit better and see if, if that question can be answered uh, based on the angle that the writer is presenting. 
So it's good to do if you have too much stuff in any genre, but if you just have a lot of pieces and you're like, I don't know how this fits together. Is it chronological? What is uh, too tangential or what is this about? If you're trying, if you have a lot of material that you're trying to distill back down and maybe perhaps mark it now that you have this <laughs> Frankenstein thing going on. Um, and uh, even when you present a question, for example, a question I could ask in relation to the Boston Globe slash ICU comics is what is it like to care for people uh, within a somewhat broken system of healthcare that sometimes inflicts the opposite care, uh, the opposite of care on, on patients and providers. Mm -hmm. And um, even asking that question in my head, I'm like, well, that probably sucks. <laughs> it's probably terrible. But I'm also asking, like, so we ask the question and we have a, a possible answer and maybe the obvious answer. But then we're also like, is there an opportunity for humor? Is there an opportunity for something very strange mm -hmm. or beautiful that doesn't really line up with what I think the answer might be? So right. you're not exactly, I, I sort of presented it in classes, like trying to prove that question wrong while also answering it. Yeah. But um, yeah, like what, what do I know going into it about, well, what does my dream castle look like? I'm going to have uh, uh, preconceived ideas of what it should be. And those things are helpful but also they're fun to play with if you're like, oh, maybe it's this or maybe it's this. Unless you're someone that's terrible, <laughs> has terrible indecision at some point, then maybe you would bring an editor in to be like, what is this? Tom, tell me what this is. <laughs> right, right. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes we bring that draft in and say, what the hell am I doing here? And then the a good editor can say, oh, here's your sentence. Here's your, or mm -hmm. here's the question. Um, I read I read this book on, on uh, playwriting and dramatic writing once that, sort of boiled down every good play to one statement. And that statement, um, like with Macbeth, it was like, uh, um, desire for power dis ultimately destroys or something like that, right? Oh, cool. So you don't go into, I don't think you go into a story knowing that. And just like you were saying, yours might be a question, does ultimate? <laughs> desire for power destroy and you might be like what's funny about that yeah. <laughs> you know you're saying like what's, about that? what's funny about that what's strange about it what's really human about that um but ultimately in the editing process you will you will keep probably the things that that are that that do serve that angle and serve your answer right whether or not it's a thesis, which is which is what they were talking about in the dramatic writing book. Right. Um, and, and sometimes it's a lot easier to slap a sentence or a question on a work that has been around for hundreds of years <laughs> in Shakespeare. You're like, hmm, hmm, hmm. yes, I, I know what that is. And plenty of people are fabulous at marketing. And, you know, they'll say, oh, it's like Titanic, but in space. And, and then, boom, it's one sentence. And it's amazing. Um, but, but it's okay if... Uh, if you're just trying to get the work done and you're trying to, maybe you're exploring, uh, you're going on the real estate tour of your dream castle with all the lights off and you're trying to figure <laughs> out uh, where the bathroom is, then uh, maybe it's good to like ask a question like, well, where would I put my bed if this were my dream castle like, before you're moving into the dream castle? I'm really trying to bring this metaphor back. You but really I are, you really are. I, but I want to actually, I think what you just mentioned about, about like this, idea from Shakespeare being hundreds of years old and other ideas being thousands of years old. That is one thing we run into sometimes, which is my idea has already been done, right? But, and so, and so we have to find the motivation to like tell our story 
um, because it will be fil filled with those details and some of those details will be strange and some of those details will be funny and some of those details will be um, perplexing in ways, right? So like no single idea is, is, is worth abandoning because it's been done already. Even the yeah. idea of ultimate, what was it? I forget, but <laughs> you know. There could, the, there could be like, I mean, a, a lot of really fabulous art has been made because it's already been done and it's, it has like its own self-awareness about that and it enters into a bigger conversation about that stuff. I don't know if that's what you want to do. There was also something that happened in the um, creative writing MFA. A lot of people had a heart for um, different causes and they were like, I really care about X, Y, Z and I want to put that into my work. How do I do that? And um, the instructor this was asked of was like, don't do that. <laughs> They're like, it's gonna make it into the work anyway if you're obsessed with it. Like, don't worry about like having, um, you know, everything written out and have uh, justifications or examples of every little thing. Like that's, your work will always be steeped in that. And even writers that we love, that we come back to and we read multiple books by the same writer or multiple films by the same creators um, we're like, man, they're still obsessed with that one thing. They have a thing that they're like working through in almost all right. of the things. Like you can see a thread of the right. thing that they care about. So it's definitely going to be there. And maybe that's a driver for what your castle is, how you market your castle too. <laughs> it sounds like you're talking about, um, there's our human story, right? And then there's this, the, the stuff we want to change about society that we want people to know about. Um, and I'm guessing that's what you're talking about with this MFA program. And so if somebody's really feels like climate change is an important thing to to get into their novel, which I, I agree is obviously super important. Um, the question of it was like, when do I, so when do I get to put in my diatribe about climate change and put all this stat? And you as a nonfiction writer, I want to ask you this, but I also sort of want to bring up an example. It's like, you know, when do I put in all my stats about climate change that's going to move people's people to act and stuff like that? But if you're telling a human story, you may not need it. And like you were saying, it may come, it may be your, your work may be steeped in that knowledge anyway. And the example I want to bring up was a book I read recently. It's 900 pages long. It is called The Third Person. And crap, I've forgotten Grace. I've forgotten the name of the author. I'm so sorry. Um, but it's, um, she uh, is telling the story of having um, this dissociative identity disorder. And um, it's fascinating. And it wasn't until page 720 something where for about a half a page, she talks about what dissociative identity order is. And I realized like, oh, she's doing like the, 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 the science info dump. And it literally, it was like half a page of 900 pages. And at that point, I realized like, oh my God, she hasn't done this yet. Thank God, because it's been so engrossing. It's been so human mm. and so much understanding of dissociative identity disorder without that, them diving into the science of it and stuff. And you yeah. as a nonfiction writer, I want to know how you balance that and when you, um, well, how you balance it. What's the balance between stats and facts and human story and... I noticed, well, there's two things that happen in, in the work that I'm doing. They're, they tend to be dominated by a point of view that's first person that says, like, I did this, or I remember one time this happened. And on the comics page, 
Now we're getting into brass tacks. Thanks for asking, Tom. Uh, you can uh, you can expose you can put that information there that one person talking with dialogue balloons, or a real time uh, sort of like flashback of them having a conversation with someone else, and then what's done in dialogue. Or you have caption boxes where it says this happened, and then you're showing either that thing that happens or some other type of visual that you want to put there. Um, so, um, damn it, I lost my train of thought. What were you talking about? <laughs> We were talking, I was asking you about, about stats and facts and how- and Oh, yeah. So there, yeah, there's real knowledge about um, about these things that happen. And when we work with the Boston Globe, I think sometimes there'll be like a technical term or even just like a medical term. And we'll be asked to um, kind of make like a footnote and to define that so that on the virtual kind of mobile scrolling version of the comic, you can click on that word and have a little um, pop-up box that says what it is. Like, oh, okay. This person might have bled to death. And then you press the plus button and it's like, because of X, Y, Z, and you just, this is why that's true. Um, but that's because we're working with um, journalists that want that kind of um, ex explicitness and availability of definition within the language. Um, when I'm thinking about the the work I'm doing, it's more narrative driven. I have a, I have an interest in including more dialogue if it starts to get stiff and dry, if a lot of it's like voiceover, you first person um, monologue, that's good, but sometimes it can um, it can slow down the momentum of the story. So sometimes if we have like a real real time exchange with multiple people and multiple dialogue, the reader has to kind of participate in overhearing that conversation and try to figure out what it would mean. So I've been leveraging the um, info background, what the narrator thinks about what's happening with uh, with dialogue. And that seems to strike a little bit of a balance. We don't have, to, we, my partner and I kind of make fun of that, like nonfiction-y uh, tone. There, I, saw, I think there was a tweet somewhere that was like, why is nonfiction always like, in 19 tickety two, Stephen J. Hot Dog invented uh, the, whatever it is. So we're always calling it the Stephen J. Hot Dog. I'll have to see if I can find <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, sometimes an info dump is an info dump. Um, and also it happens in fiction. Some character will have like a random monologue and you're like, this is kind of sounds like the director talking about why they don't like X, Y, Z. And so you have to be really sneaky about it. If you if you do want to do that, you have to engineer it. And we've, uh, me and my partner have started paying attention to the way um, certain movies will, will have a character monologue. And why it does work because of how it's placed or something like that. So sometimes you can sneak in the info in the dialogue itself and it doesn't sound like a mm -hmm. self-serving monologue. But as you said, the work is steeped in it and it might not be necessary anyway. I think practitioners of, of writing and cartooning, especially nonfiction, we feel like we have to justify what it is we're doing. We're like, just so you know, like I know all this other stuff too. And um, we were even talking about... Um, bibliographies or footnotes like how, how to show sometimes it is relevant to talk about the research you've done and how to show that I only had like a small author's note at the end of my graphic novel and I copied that dance move from Sarah Glidden who did something similar and how to understand Israel in 60 days or less because I was like how do how do you do that with nonfiction but it's comics so I went to the graphic novel section and started looking and I was like oh you just have to put a note in the background that says this is what you looked at and this is what you're thinking um, so it isn't straight journalism 
all the time. But yeah, there are habits of journalism that are kind of like that. We I also just wanted to call attention to the chat. Sally had her she she does want to talk about physical dream castle workspaces. Just throwing that out there. Um okay. Can we we get to that? Because I wanna I wanna riff off what you were just saying, which is yeah. I sort of I'm to some degree I'm imagining something that doesn't exist and to other degrees I'm I'm totally responding to something that does exist. And so I'm wondering if there's like a place for the story in one package, the story, and then the unpacking of the story in the same book, in the same presentation, things like that. And it's, this does exist. I want to bring up someone that you and I are both inspired by, Brian Darius, who we both worked with, who related to the, the material you're working with has been doing um, the play of Antigone with um, first responders and, and other and healthcare workers and things like that. And so one of the one of the ways his presentations work is they get these actors, five or six of them. Actually, Antigone's pretty small, it's probably three or four. Um, and they tell the story, and it's the human story of trying to like bring this person who's who's ailing to rest and all this stuff. And then, and that's like 40 minutes, and then for like another. 45 minutes, they talk about healthcare. You know, they debrief with they they take questions from the audience. They they get a couple people who are who are on the front lines, and that's when the stats come out. You know, and they're like, we have to change this because that you like you just saw in that drama, this, 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 and this, you know. And so um, and it makes me think that, you know, one thing I've been noticing in a lot of books lately, especially YA books, I kind of like it, is that. The, you'll see the book and then there'll be like 20 pages of like how this book got made and it'll show drafts and it'll show like notes. Um, and it might be like, I, I wrote this in my diary when I was 10 and now it's in a book. You know, it'll be things like that. And I, I actually love this where maybe maybe there's room for both and, and it's not like, and we can actually separate them, have them be part of the same experience, but not be part of the exact same continuum. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think so. There's like uh like how we how we share and think about process. And I feel like Saw is a great community where like again, we are looking over someone's shoulder on a Zoom call and being like, oh, I think I see sticky notes on their wall. And uh and we're like, what's that behind you? Like we we like to um be borderline invasive about people's uh process and workspace uh here at Saw. But also I think people feel um free to share that too, like to share something that's not quite done and is going in 18 different directions. I think that's really, really valuable. Um, I think it's part of the ritual too. Like to me, again, I want to bring art backing it back into the ritualistic space where we do it for ritualistic reasons. We don't do it for commercial reasons and we don't do it. Um, we do it because it is, it is a community building and it, it cements our position as community members. And so part of the part of the ritual might be um, putting it on the wall, showing your color-coded system, showing, actually, you know what? Tessa Hulls was showing in yesterday's call how she has these two dinosaur animals on her workstation. Now we're bringing it back to, now we're bringing it back to workspace. Um, she has these two dinosaurs that are her brush holders. One's a triceratops, I forget what the other dinosaur was. And um, she said it was really important for her to put them in the book. And then she realized, like, if, in order to make the book work for her, she had to have at least as many pictures of her two dinosaurs as there were pictures of her mother crying. 
And she, she said that because she didn't want to make an overly sad book or an overly maudlin book or something like that. So, so there's tons of drawings of her dinosaurs. Um, but part of that, so what I'm saying is, is like part of that transparency about being in the middle of the art making process is kind of wonderful. And I, I, I really like seeing it. And so maybe, maybe facts and stats and things like that are part of that. And maybe, maybe what I'm asking for arguing for is like more, less people saying like, this is the facts and these are the stats and more people saying, oh, these are the stats. Why are these the stats? You know, <laughs> like, can you believe we have to work with these stats in this book I'm trying to make? I don't know. I I, I think I'm arguing for more meta. I don't know what I'm arguing. No, for. I like that. that <laughs> and I like that tone too. That's akin to your work with bees dying that Jim Hamilton brought up. He's like, Tom, you did have like one guy yelling uh, into the ether, like laying on his back uh, on the topic of like, Tom's like, I really don't do a ton of action uh, scenes, like, or fight scenes in my comics for some reason. So yeah, we start to notice things about um, the tone of what we're saying, how we're saying it, what to include, what not to include, how to draw it. And a lot of it is just like, well, I'd rather draw someone laying down than someone chopping off something with a sword. Like, and that's just what I'm in the mood to draw. But also um, like, I'm in the middle of this intense experience and I want to show you something about the experience. So here's my workspace, you know? Yeah. Like to me, I, I love this idea. I also feel like we're finally coming around full circle in this episode where we're bringing it back to workspaces because who you are in your space can be part of the content. Like, I think I'm always arguing for like less separation of everything in the process, you know? Like, like there isn't like, I am the artist and I am making art and I'm doing it in my art space, right? It's more like, I wanna see everything blended together personally. Um, because yes. we're all, we're all like mixed up humans in the middle of some sort of experience. And so we want, we want the whole experience from you as well. That's what I I'm saying. Or, Tom Project. and I definitely have a bias for this, but I have met cartoonists that do like put on their cartoonist hat and get to work and they have their nine to five at their desk and then they go home and like they're a really regimented, uh, creators that do that. And I find it deeply charming, but I think when I was younger and wilder, I used to find it really irritating. <laughs> But now I'm like, oh, you do you, Chris Ware, <laughs> or whoever. Um, like they're commercially successful and uh, household names, so maybe they maybe they have it figured out. But but I agree with Tom that um, your your workspace is a sort of cloistered, beautiful, um, sacred, private area. But also you can share it with whoever you want uh, on the internet, uh, and you can also like figure out. Yeah, there might be multiple workspaces. People in the chat are talking about. Um, kind of being mobile and also having a dedicated workspace and then abandoning it because you're like, I can't sit in this chair anymore. And um, Thomas famously has like a gorgeous setup and will often draw on the floor, um, <laughs> crisscross applesauce without even a chair, maybe a maybe a cushion, but nothing fancy. Um, and and I think like, there are a lot of different ways to... Um... Well, honestly, and, and I'm, I'm not going to torture the me metaphor because I think it is, it's actually really relevant here, but like for me, as long as I would, ever since I was a child, my sort of castle was the, was the act of drawing cartoons. Right. And so that's all I really needed. And so like, especially if I could sort of kind of believe it or not, hunch my clothes in my body a little bit, you know? So, so sitting on the floor, crisscross applesauce with, with uh, cartoon art, on my lap or something that is that's kind of that's kind of my castle <laughs> and um i am the castle <laughs> well, no 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 but i mean it's just it's this it's this ex 
experience. And I mean, it's very private, um, but I can do it anywhere so long as, and so like, I never was, I was never one for setting up the, I, I don't get enough sunlight, that's for sure. But but I was never one for setting up uh, the perfect studio, mostly because I actually didn't, I didn't always have the resources for it. And part of me didn't feel like it, it uh, you know, deserve to spend anything lavish on a studio especially yeah. if I can do the work on my lap crisscross applesauce I might right I'd even yeah I like the idea of accessibility like of course I have like the dream version of what I want my studio to be like but um and also we were talking earlier on the call about um the role of comparison and, and figuring out what your what you want your your life or your work to look like your workspace or your work itself and um when I when I was living in Brooklyn, I, I got to see different studios and different places people were working and making comics or, or paintings or sculpture. And um, there, I think there was a little bit of a standardization. And like, if you want to make comics, make sure you have a drafting table that's at an angle and make sure you work on really big paper and use a nib and a, a rapidograph or pro quill, whatever. There was always like something that you should use to be like the real capital C cartoonist at least like 15 years ago when I was trying to start making comics. And uh, and then I had other friends that were like, live in small uh, rooms that would only fit a bed and they would have like a board that they would stick their work to. And they made beautiful, beautiful drawings just sitting in their bed because they didn't, they didn't even have the room for a desk, but they had a flat surface. Um, so I've seen work made in lots of different spaces, but some of this standardization, it took to heart and I was like, oh, I, I should do that. Um, the other folly is that I'm left-handed and nothing works and spatially I'm confused. And I like, if we move into a new apartment, I'm always shoulder checking the doorways. So like castles are confusing to begin with, like just dragging my body through space is hard. <laughs> so, so, uh, so encountering uh, tables at an angle or bigger paper, I actually like it negatively impacted my drawing. And I was telling Tom earlier that um, there's the phrase, bad workers always blame their tools. But I am that guy, and I will tell you, it didn't work. The big paper didn't work for me. I know Cat Tuesday had mentioned uh, sometimes they like having a big piece of paper, even if they draw small, so their brain has the space, even if it's not necessarily utilized. So there's lots of different variations on that. But um, yeah, you notice what you like. But like Tom likes making like a cocoon around the page, yeah. the little uh, place yeah. to be in. So it doesn't have to be big or fancy. But it seems like a lot of creators are interested in portability now. Sally in the comments was talking about that and also Leonie. And uh, we had a student in the graphic novel intensive, Pam Y. Pam, if you're listening, hello. Um, she got uh, Procreate an iPad and she was like, oh my gosh, I can work on my comic at work. Like, obviously she's doing her job, but there was little teeny bits of downtime of 10 minutes. I think she teaches public school and she was able to use those moments and stay connected with her work. And she was so absolutely thrilled with that. And I know a lot of people have encountered um, digital platforms and iPads of like just being able to slip it in your bag is like absolutely game changing for them. That was actually my my next question. I was thinking maybe it would be a way to sort of sign, sign out would be to ask the people who do work entirely on iPad, for instance, is the dream castle abstract? Is it, is it, you have your, you know, you have your, your pad and you, and you know, it comes out of your bag and you're like instantly in your dream castle 
or do you have to be in a workspace that you prefer? And I don't know. I, I, I does, it does seem to me that most people I see who work on an iPad can work on it anywhere. And that's kind of magic. Um, I haven't gotten there yet with that, but I do have my, my lap and my, you know, my crisscross applesauce, but, um, but yeah, for you working in the, anybody in the chat who does it on iPad, I'd love to hear if you, um, if you can work anywhere or if you have your preferred places to work or is it some sort of weird mixture? I don't um, have an iPad, but I, I, so I don't have a great answer for that, but I, I do have a laptop that's not particularly large because I had a, a desktop for so long and I was like, oh, and then I had a laptop and it was really heavy and I was trying to carry it around. I was like, oh, this is miserable. So I finally got this laptop that wasn't too heavy and I've, I've been squirreling away my art on it uh, for the, the stuff for the Boston Globe that has a deadline. It's easier for me to work digitally as much as possible, like after the preliminary drawings are done. And then uh, I went to a friend's house where they had a big monitor and I was traveling. So I got to borrow that. And I was like, man, I need a bigger monitor right? because it was so luxurious to, to see Photoshop and to have like multiple windows open. Some people have multiple monitors too. Like I've, it depends on different types of digital workers. But I thought, wow, it's funny if I spend too long in one size, I want to go to the other one or something. Are we closing the doors on the dream castle? No. That's a <laughs> it's a, what's next? What's next week's? What's next week's topic? Lettering, obviously. <laughs> okay. No one wants to know about lettering. Turning uh, the gates with your kerning and letting. Yeah, well, we definitely, I, I feel like it's so hard not to make stuff philosophical, but um, yeah, like lettering. I didn't used to like it. Now I like it. I could tell you about my... I hate the phrase, my journey, <laughs> but let's talk about lettering journeys together. Tom and I, we could do that. Um, Episode <laughs> five, my lettering journey. I, I lettered, <laughs> letters are so important and, you know, and utilizing written language in our comics is so important. I do want to talk about it someday, but I love how we've been putting it off. It's funnier uh, that we're not doing it, but eventually maybe we should talk about it. <laughs> just such a fabulous underutilized part of uh part of comics people are really talking about it in the chat All yeah right. it's cool we're gonna save the chat i'm gonna do a recap and then um sally was uh thinking about maybe starting a thread on the mighty network either in flow or the public feed about um workspaces because we are workspace obsessed and that's like uh something it's a sort of visual that's hard to talk about in a um slightly less visual medium we're doing audio here um you know, it's one thing I think about related to the pandemic, I'm sure other people have said this too, but like the fact that we all like got onto Zoom so fast and we all started relating in this way that we're relating right right now, it's like suddenly we're all seeing in each other's houses. It's super cool. It's really, really nice. I've got my visual background on because I'm in this weird public space, but <laughs> but but I I um I sort of love that. And I love that some of people are zooming from their workspace, which is even better. I I I wasn't doing that, but anyway, yeah. I just I just love that we're able to share. I just feel like we're sharing so many at, at all right, here's my plug for Saw, but here at Saw, we're sharing so many experiences of what it means to be an artist in the middle of the process of making something. And um and I just can't get enough of it. I love seeing how people do it how we do it, not how like the other people do it, but how like we do it here. And the answer is there's room for all, tons of room for all the castles. <laughs> yeah. 
you get a castle. You get a castle. All of you get a castle. <laughs> All right, Jess, are we are we wrapping this up? We're done. Let's let's put the castle away. <laughs> put our toys away. Our Lego castle is going with the other toys. I didn't, Thanks for I didn't being here. Yeah. What were you going to say, Tom? Oh, that I didn't mention the weird, the, you know, sort of outsider castles that I wanted to mention, Sir Howard Finster or Coral. Put it in the recap and you can correct me and I did it all wrong. (laughs) This is why we have editors. Bouncy castles, Walter, we didn't even talk about the bouncy castle. Not only do we have an editor, we have a Zoom AI summary. So maybe the Zoom AI summary will tell us what we just talked about. It's going to replace me. I don't need to do a recap now. The robots are doing I guess we'll find out. All right, Jess. Thanks as always. It's really amazing talking to you once a week, and we'll and uh, I'm eager to read your book when it comes out in June. Haha. <laughs> I was like, which book? We haven't even talked about the fiction. I've been neglecting, but yeah, I'm glad again. Like my, the universe will help you work on like what's my next project. Tom's like, you should make a book. I'm like, okay, <laughs> just do what other people suggest. I don't know what my castle is until someone recommends it. <laughs> Recommended castles. Mira, um, what's the term? A, a, a sort of, uh, oh, what's the, yeah, I don't know, you, some kind of Ronin or something, sort of roaming, roaming uh, royalty looking for a new home or something. Yeah, it's like the classifieds in search of castle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jess, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks everybody at SAW for being here. This will go up you know, on audio podcasting things soonish. And uh, we'll wrap it up. Thanks, everybody. Thank y'all. All right, bye. Bye. Podcastle. Podcastle. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I'll see you All later. Right. Bye. Thanks for joining us. This has been a production of the Sequential Artists Workshop, or SAW. You can find us on social media at Comics Workshop and online at sawcomics.org. You can hear about our many courses at learn.sawcomics.org. SAW is a nonprofit and supported by people like you. Learn how to make a tax-deductible donation at the donate page of sawcomics.org. You can join our free community of comics explorers at members.sawcomics.org. Thanks so much for being here.